Christ uh, at his resurrection and ascension became the king of the new creation. His, his resurrection launched the new eschatological creation because uh, a new creation was to come about in the latter days. And actually what that means is that uh, every, when, when Paul looked at anything, it was through already and not yet eschatological lenses. And what does that mean? New creational lenses. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, tell us how you're doing. I'm well, and I'm thrilled to be here with a mutual friend of ours uh, to talk about his new book. Yeah, we're here with Greg Beal, who is a mutual friend, good friend, and someone who we not only consider a good friend, but but a, a uh, Someone to whom we really uh, look up, uh, and 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 we've we've both benefited greatly from his scholarly work. Uh, Dr. Beal is professor of New Testament at RTS Dallas, and he's been a number of other places as well. Uh, our, our listeners will probably know him from his Revelation commentary and his New Testament biblical theology. But the book we want to discuss today is entitled "Union with the Resurrected Christ." eschatological new creation and new testament biblical theology greg thanks for joining us today no it's good to be here now i want to begin where you begin which is with the thesis of the book um you 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 put it this way i'm going to just quote from greg beal right now the thesis of this book is that christ's resurrection and ascension place him at the beginning of the eschatological fulfillment of the new creational kingdom. So in what sense is the resurrection and ascension of Christ an eschatological event? And how does it uh, bring about the beginning of this new creational kingdom? Yes. Um, it's, it's very interesting that the phrase new creation doesn't occur much in the Bible. In fact, it doesn't even occur much in the New Testament. Uh, we do find it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Uh, many will remember uh, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, old things have passed away, new things have come. And he comes close to talking about uh, that phrase in Colossians chapter 1, um, and verse 18, where it talks about Christ being head of the church in the beginning there, um, so that he would have first place in all things. Um, and, and actually probably Revelation 3.14 may be another place where it talks about Christ as the beginning of the creation. Not, I don't think that's the first creation, but the second new creation. So it doesn't occur much. But uh, basically what I show in my New Testament biblical theology, upon which this second book is based, uh, is, is that uh, I have a significant section arguing that while the phrase new creation does not occur much in the New Testament, um, the concept does. And so what I do is I just go through the New Testament and show uh, how resurrection is new creation coming to life again. When the, the way people will participate in the eternal new creation is how? Through resurrection bodies. That's their new creation. And so the, the idea of new creation is massive in the New Testament uh, uh, because resurrection is all over the place. Um, uh Richard Gavin wrote a book many years ago called The Centrality of the Resurrection in Paul. And, um, and, and he showed how, how central it was, in fact, the central concept. Um, he never, in my opinion, explained why that was. It wasn't the intent of the book. It was just to show it was. But Seyun Kim came along a little bit later with a book called The Origin of Paul's Gospel. And he said the reason 
that Paul is so concerned about resurrection in his letters is because of that encounter he had with the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road. It stamped him, and that stamp never left him. And so whenever he would write to a church, he would reflect on different facets of who, who Christ was at that Damascus encounter. And so he met Christ as the new created king, uh, the king of the new creation on the Damascus Road. And so uh, this is why Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. And this is why I wrote this book, Union Not With Christ, Union With the Resurrected Slash Ascended Christ because a number of books have been written on union, even within the last 15 years, and essays. But most of it is just in Paul, and most of it is just generally in Christ. Looking at those phrases, um, I go to the whole New Testament, uh, and, and I, I try not to make the word concept mistake, because even though new creation doesn't occur a lot, uh, we do find the concept. And so we find the union concept as well throughout. And so, um, uh, to answer your question then, um, uh, Christ uh, at his resurrection and ascension became the king of the new creation. His, his resurrection launched the new eschatological creation because uh, a new creation was to come about in the latter days. And actually what that means is that uh, every, when, when Paul looked at anything, it was through already and not yet eschatological lenses. And what does that mean? New creational lenses. Let's talk briefly about resurrection and what it does for Christ uh, before we talk about you. We'll talk about union because that's obviously the a large theme in the book. But what is it? I think sometimes it's easy to think that Christ was crucified, Christ was raised, but there's a but the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And so was there something real that happened to or changed in Christ incarnate via that experience of resurrection? Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the idea is that um, uh, what Christ was in his ministry functionally, not ontologically, I mean, he's the son of God, that doesn't change in terms of divineness, right. but as the son of God as a king, that was something prophesied to happen in redemptive history, so that when the son of God, uh, Jesus, is incarnated, then he begins to be a king. He grows as a king. Same is true uh, as a priest, um, as an obedient human son, and so on. And so all of these um, uh, human functional things that, that were began fulfillment with Christ reached their pinnacle of consummate fulfillment with him at his resurrection ascension, so that uh, that that. Uh, he, he becomes the epitome of a king at Ascension. He becomes the epitome of a priest um, in a way that he actually wasn't functionally uh, during his ministry. He began to be that, but now it's consummated. A and priest so, forever. Is that is the forever something? Is that resurrectional? Is that an allusion to resurrection? That he's, it's, it's not just a, a priest for today or tomorrow, but there's, a, there's an enduring aspect yeah. of his... Well, I think so. Now, you're in the book of Hebrews, and I, I have to look at the exact passage. But uh, uh, yes, these things then become, and this is very important as it relates to Jonathan's question about eschatology. Once he reaches this consummate stage, it's irreversible. In fact, even when it's inaugurated, it's irreversible in his life. True eschatology cannot be reversed. 
This is why I don't believe there's eschatology in the Old Testament, even inaugurated eschatology. And for example, a new creation at Noah's flood looks like, hey, this is a replication. We, we, we have a new beginning here. This is the beginning of, of the fulfillment of what, what should have happened with Adam if he had been faithful. But no, it stops because uh, Noah's disobedient. Uh, and so that becomes typological. These things that look inaugurated really look like they're working toward the end. Well, they are, but they stop. And, and, and so these things become typological. They're not, they're, they're reversed. And so um, uh, I used to believe there was inaugurated eschatology in the Old Testament. And then as I thought much more about it, I realized, no, uh, th th this is what happens in the New Testament. Now, you do need to distinguish eschatology from fulfillment of prophecy. I do think there are prophecies in the Old that are fulfilled in the Old, but they're not eschatological. So, um, so that that's, a, that's a really important, that's a very helpful distinction. So it's, it's an extension or an enriching of typology. Is that what you would see? as yeah. what's normally happening in the OT? Once you have once you have the antitype, which is the fulfillment of the type, once you have that, that's irreversible. This is why we don't need to look for another temple built in Jerusalem. Jesus is the eschatological temple toward which all temples pointed and toward which all the prophecies about the temples pointed. Once he becomes temple and, and consummates that at his ascension in himself, that's irreversible. We don't need to, the reason you, you don't need another temple is because then you're going back to the to the types. And Can we say that his resurrection is, as it were, the 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 building of the temple uh, into its eschatological form? Is this is this is resurrection temple building consummate consummate temple building? Because it it, it begins actually uh, he begins to function as temple in his ministry. Right. Remember, uh, sacrifice no longer revolves around the temple in, in his ministry. It revolves around him. Forgiveness no longer revolves around sacrifices in the temple. Forgiveness revolves around him. Remember Mark 2. Uh, uh, he heals the man, and uh, and then he says, well, what does that really mean? It means the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins in all the earth. And by the way, that's a beginning fulfillment of the Son of Man prophecy, which is a last Adam prophecy. And, and we can go on from there. You, uh, Greg, you, you connect in your thesis statement, um, the resurrection and the ascension. Obviously, that's not in the title of the book, but but you've you've mentioned it a, a fair amount here. So to, uh, can you can you describe what the significance of the ascension of Christ is? Why? Why it's important for us to not just talk about union with the resurrected Christ, but union with the resurrected and ascended Christ would, because I think for many people, they, they understand something from the new Testament of the significance of resurrect of the resurrection of Jesus. But, but it's a little more vague why the ascension is as important as it is. Yes, because in, in reality, uh, what you have ascension is the second stage of resurrection and the consummate stage. There was an inaugurated stage of resurrection in the 40-day ministry. And uh, but he was that was not the final uh stage of his resurrected state. That occurred in Acts chapter one when he uh, uh ascends in, in, into heaven in a in a different dimension. So um so actually ascension is resurrection, it's the consummate second stage of resurrection, but we can truly speak of his 40 day ministry as the beginning of resurrection. But I think that's why he tells Mary, you know, don't touch me at this point. Whatever that means, it at least means that 
that he is not in that final ascended state at that at that point. Now, there's a very nice book by Tom Schreiner's son on the distinction between uh, ascension and resurrection that Crossway has produced. Now, when you say uh, ascension is the is the consummate stage of resurrection, are you are you speaking specifically just of Christ's resurrection or or of the resurrection of of believers as well uh, by, by Christ in the end? I mean, is ascension? Oh, I guess what I'm asking is, is ascension always a package deal with resurrection? Well, uh, it, it, it was with Christ. And uh, I think with believers, we will receive uh, at the very end our resurrection bodies and uh, will be translated into heaven. And I think we could probably call that our ascension at that point. I wouldn't object to that. You usually don't see that. And you usually don't see Paul referring to the word ascension either. Usually it's resurrection. But when he uses that, it's, it's often, at least in my book, in context of ascension. I wonder if like Ephesians 2 brings that together. We've been raised up together with Christ and are seated with him in heavenly places. Does that, does that bring the, maybe we can transition to union here. Does that, is that a union aspect that gives us a share, so to speak, in resurrection ascension? Yeah, I think what I was speaking uh, about was a consummate resurrection ascension, but we actually begin to share, in, and that's the whole point of the book, we begin to share in who Christ is at the ascension. So, of course, we're identified with his ascension. And in my book, there are all these different, I, have, I don't know, 18 or 20 things that, that were identified with Christ and what he became at his ascension. So, of course, yes, we're, we're now identified with that ascension. So, uh, well, Jonathan, go ahead. We can talk about this. Well, I, I, I would, I would imagine we're gonna we were gonna ask more or less the same question, James, because I, I wanted to 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 move into the question of union with the resurrected Christ and what are the dimensions of that union with the resurrected. We'll say sort of resurrected, ascended Christ. Um. So, so you're asking what are the dimensions of union? Yeah, well, and maybe we could say what, what is what kind of union? Can we yeah. say it that way? What kind of union sure. is this? Yeah, um, there, there's a very nice book by Constantine Campbell on union and Paul. Uh, it's, it's it's limited only to Paul, but uh, and and it's 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 very exegetical in that he looks uh, primarily at phrases and synonyms of in Christ, but but he does talk about the dimensions of union that I think are helpful. It's very simple and brief, but. He mainly uh, says that um, what, what we really should be speaking about is something like close relatedness to Christ. And then so then he introduces union. Union is uh, something that, that, that focuses on a lively, intimate relationship, albeit mysterious. Perhaps it's best analog in marriage, as Ephesians 5 says. Because you can't define marriage merely by uh, the physical, as, as Genesis uh, 2 uh, says, that and the two became one, or they will become one. Uh, that's a oneness uh, also uh, in spirit, in emotion, uh, in mind, even economically. Uh, there, there are different layers to that union there. And so I think that that would be union. I think you can speak also of participation so in some texts in the book. Uh, uh, you can see that the believer actually participates in the past historical narrative of Christ's redemption. We died with him and became the life with him, for example, in Romans 
chapter six and 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 elsewhere. Uh, and so that's that's historical participation. Um, and, and of course, we won't talk about the the, the theological uh, meaning of that because if someone really holds to that we participated in Christ's death and resurrection, it means we really did, and that means that uh, he really did die for his people. And 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 I, I think that that moves very quickly to uh, per, particular redemption or limited atonement, but we won't go there for now. Uh, a third aspect of uh, uh, union w- would be identification. That's very general. Sometimes in the book, it's hard to pinpoint. Is, is this union? Is this participation? Um, identification is just that, 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 that we're uh, in the locality of Christ. We're, we're close to Christ, so in some way we're identified with him. And, uh, and then finally, there's incorporation which focuses on us being part of the body of Christ. We're represented by Christ and, uh, and, and we're members of his body. So in, in some texts, I focus on one or the other of those meanings. And sometimes when you can't pinpoint it, uh, uh, the most general of those is identity. In, Greg, in the book, you met, you use an older word at one point. You've already alluded to it, that it's a living union. And I think you said the older writers called a mystical union. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was glad that you rehabilitated that old word in part because I think I, I think I had maybe a kind of very modernist aversion uh, years ago to that kind of language. Is that the right way to think of our union with Christ and his resurrection as as mystical? And is there is there a legitimate way to think of it that way? Well, uh, I don't think it's the right way, but I think it is a right way. Okay. And um, and why is that? Well, it's for the simple reason that uh, you cannot fully explain it, um, how we are in union with Christ and how the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts and resurrected us and caused us to come into union with Christ. That is a supernatural activity, which necessarily involves uh, a mysterious element. Yeah. And for example, I wouldn't want any of the hearers to think that, oh, well, uh, since we're in union with Christ, since he's divine, we're divine. No, Um, we have to be very careful in, in these matters. In some areas, yes, we are identified with Christ in some some others uh, we are not, and, and and the biblical text has to tell us in what ways those are. Hmm. Greg, we're 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 kind of nearing the end of our time, but I wanted to ask a question about the the um, proportionality that that we to which we should assign this doctrine. So this is this book is kind of a sequel to your New Testament biblical theology. At least it seemed that way to me. John Murray famously wrote that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And I think he goes on to say, it's not simply a, uh, a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of, of redemption. And that that's something that's been repeated by others as well. Is that, would, was that your settled conclusion as well at, at, when you when you reach the end of this study on union with the resurrected and ascended Christ that it really is the the kind of fountainhead of the New Testament's doctrine of salvation? Well, I think so because um, as I said in the book, uh, so much has been written in past generations, and Richard Gaffin said this a little bit earlier in one of his recently published books that. Uh, theologians, medieval, Catholic, Protestant have focused 
uh, on the death of Christ, usually when speaking of salvific issues, and the resurrection needs to be resurrected in this uh, conversation. And so he's done that very nicely. I, I see myself actually just developing uh, his fine work. He, he has like six pages in his Centrality of the Resurrection. And, and I see my book as a, you know, what is it, a 450-page <laughs> development of, of that. And yes, I would agree with uh, Murray. Uh, I, I do think that um, redemptive historically speaking, uh, Christ's resurrection is the further development of soteric uh, uh, considerations. Uh, without it, then, of course, you, you, the death has no meaning. Now, we can turn that around, of course, and say that, that without the death, the resurrection has no meaning. And we can say that, but redemptive, historically, we have that progression. And, and that's very important to see that progression. It's through the resurrected Christ, in fact, that we are identified with his death. Greg, we're we're out of time, but I really appreciate uh, your your willingness to come on with us today, and uh, we we commend this book as we really commend everything you've written to our to our listeners. Uh, and so, thanks thanks for giving us a little bit of your time. Well, hey, can I say one more thing? That my please hand, please one finish. more thing, because in in the book on some of these things, uh, we come into identification with Christ, and it is. Uh, a kind of a perfect identification, if you will. And I think I'm just going to briefly here at the end, choose sanctification. Yeah. First uh, Corinthians one says to the saints in Corinth who have been sanctified. It's a perfect tense. There's debate about it, but I think the long and the short of it at the end of the day, it's speaking of our, our condition in Christ. He's sanctified and we're sanctified. And the word hagiadzo to sanctify is used there. And yet that word, uh, and, and here I'm going to use words, but you can find this concept beyond the words. But but hagiadzo and hagiosmos and that word group is used of definitive sanctification, which means that's ex existential now. It's irreversible, but not perfected. And we find that in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two and verse thirteen, where it says that um, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation by the setting apart of the Spirit. So how does that salvation begin? By setting apart by the Spirit. So you get definitive sanctification there, which, which so consumed John Murray's writings, irreversible. Yeah. And, and, and there we get the irreversibility of eschatology, you see. And then uh, thirdly, you have progressive uh, sanctification. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, for, uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. For God has called us, verse 7, for the purpose of, not for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And then in that same letter, he talks about, finally, uh, consummative sanctification with the same word, 523, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, uh, etc. And so in my book, uh, some of these identifications with Christ may focus on that perfect condition that we're seen to have in Christ. Some may focus on the definitive irreversibility of uh, being set apart from the world. Others uh, on a progressive aspect of being identified with who Christ is in these various functions. And then finally, the consummative. So I just I wanted to add that because it fleshes out a little bit of, of what I do in the whole book. It's a great addition. Thank you. No, that's that's. Yep. Tremendously helpful. Thank you, Greg, very much for being with us. Yeah. Very good to be with you.
Well, James, as always, another uh, worthwhile volume from Greg Beal. Uh, he's he's always thoroughly exegetical and innovative in, in all the best ways, but uh, grounded and rooted in a close reading of Scripture. And so, this is uh, this is not a necessarily an, uh, an introductory volume. So you have to, it'll take some work to get through it, but uh, but but well worth it. Uh, for years, I've been using uh, Richard Gaffin's Resurrection and Redemption volume in in my grad uh, course on Doctrine of Salvation, and and this is really that central thesis of union with the resurrected Christ as the way in which we receive the benefits of salvation. But it it's um it's a thesis well deserving of the more expansive treatment uh, being given to it by Doctor Beale here, and so I I really think this is that this is a nice complementary volume to that to that um, leaner, incisive volume uh, from Richard Gaffin years ago. So I'm, I'm thrilled to see this whole thesis being built out now by Dr. Beal. And I think our listeners will benefit, really encourage them. This is hard work. This is good work. It's rewarding work. Yeah, the book is entitled Union with the Resurrected Christ, subtitled Eschatological New Creation and New Testament Biblical Theology. And we have a couple of copies to give away. If you go to placefortruth.org or theologyonthego.org, there is a place for you to enter with the possibility of winning one of these. Um, And also, we'd ask you, if you could, spread the word about Theology on the Go. If you think people will be helped by it, either do that directly or by rating and reviewing us. If you're able to give to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And from James and from myself and from the entire team here at the Alliance, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.